Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as we share the latest on COVID-19 with our resident experts. My name is Vicki Vasilega, and I'm the director of the section of clinical specialists and scientists here at ASHP, and I'll be your host. I have the distinct pleasure today to chatting with Zara Kushimani Escobar, clinical pharmacist of infectious diseases at UW Medicine Valley Medical Center and associate medical director of the University of Washington's Tele-Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. And Rupali Jane. She's the co-director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship at UW Medicine on the UWMC Montlake campus and is the director of the Infectious Diseases PGY2 program there, as well as clinical associate professor School of Pharmacy in the School of Medicine and Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at UW. They're here to talk to us today about COVID-19 infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get started to talk about today's topic. Um, how have you as infectious disease pharmacists and antimicrobial stewardship teams worked with the rest of the hospital to triage medication treatment strategies in patients with COVID-19? Well, it's been an evolving process. We're all learning all together, all at the same time. In the beginning, we, had, we, we would help gather information on possible treatments and how to get investigational or compassionate use agents. As we were getting more and more questions, we had less and less answers. And so we decided to create a guideline group to collate and provide system-wide guidance. The frontline providers were busy taking care of patients and were asking important questions on what treatments that they should use. We wanted to provide evidence-based and safe approaches to treat these patients with COVID-19. I feel very fortunate to work at UW Medicine because we have access to many experts. We quickly created a treatment guideline group that consisted of colleagues from cardiology, critical care, clinical trialists, infectious diseases, hematologists, and pharmacists. Our guidelines committee met once a week um, or once every other week to review and update literature. There are, there are lots of readings every week, many emails back and forth, and many behind the scenes work to build a consensus um, of the updated information. In addition, um, we had to communicate and disseminate this information quickly to our frontline clinicians. We also had to work with our IT colleagues to create COVID order sets to f- facilitate appropriate laboratory monitoring, medication ordering, to make sure the right dose and the right duration is, was ordered. The order sets included um, important monitoring parameters for uh, when hydroxychloroquine was ordered, um, and it helped streamline an efficient process, but also provided safe care to these patients. Yeah, um, I echo what Rupali said. You know, like most other ID pharmacists, our role at the beginning was really about reading all we could about the treatments uh, and writing local guidelines for frontline providers. And so even though Rupali and our academic medical center colleagues were putting all this information together, we still had to modify them for our institution because the Uh, treatments we had access to were slightly different. And also in the beginning, a lot of my time went to calling the FDA because uh, of remdesivir access had to be individually approved. 
As far as antibiotic stewardship, I feel like my skills were used to help with drug shortages. Um, and thinking about managing some of those PPE shortages, you know, by standardizing uh, administration times of antibiotics and basically finding ways to use ceftriaxone over every other antibiotic, just because it was so much easier to give it once daily compared to some of our other options. Sure. I feel like uh, shortages has been the name of the game. Um, so can you tell us a little bit, uh, you guys have alluded to this little, where you guys were doing a lot of reading at the very, very beginning. Um, how are you assessing the vast quantities of information coming out and applying it to your practices um, and developing protocols at your individual institutions? Yeah, I think that um, it was definitely a group effort. Um, with the pandemic scale of new literature, we had to really divide up responsibility in order to comprehend the new data and understanding new drugs. Um, we were often reviewing drugs outside of our therapeutic area, such as hydroxychloroquine and tocilizumab. This was a challenge with the quantity, especially the quality of the data. And many of us were desperate for therapeutic options. So many of our tried and true rules for drug evaluation um, were not applicable or, or were being challenged. So um, what have been your top clinical concerns and what have you done to help manage these, both from a COVID aspect and from an antimicrobial stewardship aspect? Yeah, I think, um, Vicki, that's a great question. I have so many concerns, and I don't know if I've done a lot of things to help manage these, but um, it's really hard to pick just one. Um, I think there's so much we don't understand about this virus and how it, in, how it impacts um, a wide variety of individuals. I'm concerned about the effects on pregnant individuals. I'm concerned about the long-term sequelae that we still don't understand or know about the transmission routes um, in asymptomatic individuals, as well as the effects on the disparate communities in our, in our society. But Zara, what do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely echo that the lack of understanding is what worries me most, um, particularly, you know, predicting who's getting sick and why. You know, we prepared a lot for our, our cancer patients and our immunocompromised patients and expecting that they would take the burden of this infection. And, and I don't think that's what we've really seen. Um, and, it, and we still don't fully understand it. You know, we have seen that the data in the African-American community is really concerning with more cases and worse outcomes. And here in Washington, you know, we've seen firsthand the disproportionate impact on our immigrant communities. At my hospital, you know, We've had many cases where we've seen multiple members of the same households getting admitted at the same time, being sick, being in the ICU together, um, and it's and some surviving while others didn't. And I can't I can't even begin to express how heartbreaking I think this is. You know, imagine being so sick and then you lose a spouse or your parent or a child, and then you have to recover from that illness now without someone you love and that someone was part of your day-to-day -day and in your household, I mean, it's unfathomable to me. And, um, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I've done anything to manage those, that part of things clinically, but it's what I think about on a daily basis, and it, it's what really concerns me. I think from an infectious diseases pharmacology standpoint, um, I'm not that hopeful about the treatment of the virus once people are already sick. You know, we've seen this. This is not unique 
to SARS-CoV-2. We've seen this with a lot of respiratory viral infections that, you know, first of all, we want to start treatment early if we're going to start treatment. But the best thing we can do is prevent infection. So I, I hope that a vaccine is available soon and that it's effective. As far as uh, clinically, you know, supportive care seems to be the, the most impactful. And then also trying to figure out what's going on with some of those thrombotic complications and the potential need for maybe more aggressive anticoagulation. I think from a pharmacologic standpoint, I think that maybe that is even more, warrants more attention even than some of the antiviral treatments. So you mentioned a little bit earlier um, that you are a location that uses remdesivir. Um, can you just kind of share your experiences with us, uh, you know, obtaining it, use in the patient population? Um, now that's a little bit more widely available, what has changed since when you're getting it on an individual basis? Sure. Um, I mean, at UW Medicine, again, we've been very fortunate to have access to IV remdesivir in many different capacities. I work at the um, academic center, um, UW Medicine Montlake campus and, uh, and Northwest, and we have used this drug in the early parts of the epidemic under compassionate use. This is where you have to apply for an individual patient and, and get IRB approval, get FDA approval. Soon after that, we expanded um, our access to an, what we call an expanded access program, which is very similar to compassionate use, except for you don't have to do all those regulatory steps for an individual basis. And we had that at one of our hospitals. Um, we recently started an emergency use authorization of remdesivir, which allows broader access and less regulation. Um, still a lot of regulation, but not, not as tight as a clinical trial. So in addition to that, um, in the early parts of the ep epidemic or the pandemic, um, our centers were a site for the NIH clinical trial um, that has recently been published in the New England Journal. So I'm very relieved that we had access through, um, through these mechanisms. And currently we have access through our Washington State Department of Health, who's helped managing the allocation of this based on the COVID-19 numbers at each in institution and to assure um, fair distribution amongst our state. Yeah, um, there has been, Vicki, there's been so much anxiety about this drug and with this drug. Um, and I agree with Rupali that right now I feel a substantial amount of relief that we are on the receiving end of the emergency use authorization and that um, so much medication has been released and distributed across the country. Um, but you know, for the UW medicine system, we are basically five institutions, but four of which have inpatient facilities. And uh, my hospital is one of the community hospitals that's part of the system. Rupali's more at the academic medical center. And so our hospital was, was the one of the four that didn't, was not enrolled in that clinical trial. Um, and so that was really challenging because, you know, we were going through the various phases of access as one of the first um, epicenters of the pandemic. And so our first patient that we identified was early, you know, in February. And then, you know, we thought about trying to get remdesivir. And when we called to get it, we got denied. And we didn't really know why. We didn't understand because, you know, Gilead, Gilead hadn't even created their set of criteria, or maybe they had, but it hadn't been communicated widely yet. And so we pressed to find out why, why did we get denied? And we were told, well, because the patient is on vasopressors. So we interpreted that as, oh, well, maybe the patient was too severely sick. 
And, and we did that because the only other person we knew who had received compassionate use remdesivir was a case um, also in Washington of a patient who was sick and hospitalized, but not critically ill. And he, the way the story was told or the way it was reported was that he got one dose of remdesivir and just improved significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that was a lot of the, the grayness and the, and the lack of information that we were fighting in that, in that early time. And then, you know, as you know, the, the access situation evolved from a broad compassionate use program to one that was more specific to pediatric patients and obstetric patients. Um, and, and like I said, you know, we didn't have access to the clinical trial at that time. So I was the lucky person who got to tell all our pulmonologists and the infectious diseases providers that, no, we can't give this drug, even though our ICU was full of patients with confirmed COVID-19 infection. And, you know, even at that time, we still suspected that supportive care was probably the most important treatment, but we aren't used to practicing in a situation of scarcity, right? We're not used to saying to a patient, we have a potential therapeutic option for you, but we just can't get it. Usually we say we have a potential therapeutic option and here it is. Um, So I don't think any of us were used to practicing that way. And I think that's why we felt so much anxiety. Um, We have a large birth center. So as I mentioned earlier, I spent a lot of time on the phone with the FDA, you know, coordinating an investigational drug application for each of those patients and then applying for IRB approval for each of those individual patients. uh, And then, of course, dealing with the consent and in the face of PPE shortage, et cetera. So clinically speaking, though, as you asked, our our obstetric patients actually did generally did pretty well, and we haven't seen much in the way of side effects, though we do monitor closely for renal and hepatic dysfunction. So let's switch gears just a little bit. Um, As we know, uh, although life has been all COVID-19 all the time, I'm curious to know what have been your antimicrobial restriction program efforts outside of COVID-19? How have they been faring? Um, we've kind of been hearing anecdotally that um, there's been an increase in ventilator-assisted pneumonia and other secondary infections, and therefore what might be um, an increase in inappropriate antimicrobial use. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Vicki, because in March and in much of April, which is when things are really hitting us in Washington, I don't even know what happened to our usual ID patients. You know, everything in the hospital was COVID. And I know people have said this about other disease states like cardiac arrests and et cetera. We, I don't know where they went. Um, we really, really just had COVID patients. I, I will say that I have to commend our physicians and our other providers who stopped antibiotics once the patients had confirmed SARS-CoV-2 tests. And I'm also really thankful that here at the University of Washington, our lab was able to get a test up and running and get us results generally within 24, if not 48 hours. So we could deescalate quickly. I don't think that was a situation. Actually, I know that wasn't the situation everywhere across Washington because uh, Rupali and I are also part of a antimicrobial stewardship program. And we talk to our critical access hospitals and other smaller hospitals all across the Pacific Northwest. And some of them weren't even getting results for, you know, up to five days, seven days in some cases. So I think that was a a huge impact in terms of antimicrobial stewardship, because even though you highly suspect somebody has COVID-19, 
nobody really wants to take that step and say, well, they don't have bacterial pneumonia and stop antibiotic treatment. Um, so I think that that was one issue that we, we were able to address. As far as our patients with prolonged mechanical ventilation, you know, they were at risk for and did have some secondary infections. But I would say that I don't think that we saw those to the extent that we see them in uh, post-influenza bacterial pneumonias. I don't think that we, we didn't necessarily see that with COVID. Um, but at the same time, we were enrolled in and were using some IL-6 inhibitors, which work by creating immunosuppression. So we were very careful in following those patients and looking for uh, bacterial superinfection, especially after they got some kind of immunosuppressant. And then finally, you know that the nature of COVID-19 infection is cyclical. And we were seeing that, you know, patients would get better and then all of a sudden they would decompensate and their respiratory function would get worse. And so what we were seeing was a lot of antibiotic usage in that type of clinical scenario. And it was very hard to rule out um, progression of COVID-19 versus bacterial infection. And, you know, we weren't doing BAL procedures on these patients because they're aerosol generating. And so uh, we didn't have that data to kind of inform practice. So from stewardship standpoint, I think we just had to say, you know, we're just going to treat this empirically. And we think, again, we think it might be COVID, but we don't know for sure. So we're just going to do it. So I would say that wasn't maybe the most optimal use of antibiotics, but I don't think how we could have improved it because it was just a situation where nobody wanted to take any chances. Um, and then I'll also comment that, you know, I've been also been monitoring our outpatient antimicrobial prescribing data and uh, specifically looking at respiratory infections. And so from We've been, you know, we've been doing this stewardship program where we give our providers feedback on how often they're prescribing antibiotics unnecessarily, quote unquote, for viral respiratory tract infections. And what we saw in, you know, April, I would say, is a, a slight uptick in unnecessary antibiotic prescribing for presumed viral respiratory infections. And I think that, I don't know for sure, I've done a full analysis, but I do think that perhaps that's related to maybe just-in-case measures for these patients. Just in case it gets complicated, just in case it's bacterial, we're going to prescribe you antibiotics. And we don't want you to have to come back here because, again, social distancing, shelter in place. So we're going to give these antibiotic prescriptions. And I think the same, we saw, you know, these trends were both what we saw at Valley Medical Center and also what we saw, I'm pretty sure what sure. Polly was seeing up at um, our academic campus and across our healthcare system. So, Rapali, do you have anything to add? No, I think Zara did a great job summarizing. <laughs> Perfect. Basically, I didn't do much stewardship. <laughs> um, you know, so this is clearly a very stressful time. So I'm just curious to know what the both of you are doing to maintain your well-being and resilience. Um, yeah, thanks, Vicki. I think that that's an important thing to make sure to talk about. Um, I think it's been a daily challenge. Um, you know, I, I've been trying to exercise by taking walks with friends or colleagues in the outdoor setting. Um, I'm trying to explore various hobbies while, while I'm at home and we're in shelter in place, such as tidying up my home. I'm using air quotes because this is my place of refuge, but it also needs to be a place of calm. Also gardening has been fun, especially in, in March when it's kind of 
a little bit dry and you could start planning some things. Um, and then I, I enjoy uh, watercoloring and painting. So I've been trying to do that. But I think the most important thing that I'm doing to maintain uh, well, well-being and resilience is really trying to remember to be kind to myself and to kind to others because we're all suffering. Um, whatever part of this pandemic you're a part of, whether you're an essential worker, a frontline nurse, a um, physician, uh, a person in the community that's not in healthcare, we're all, we're all suffering in this together. And that really helps keep me grounded. Zara, what about you? Yeah, I, I agree with Rupali that it's a daily challenge. Um, but during shelter-in-place rules, they just got lifted at the end of May here in Washington. My house was actually pretty full. My my partner was home from his work. My in-laws live with us. My kids were home from their preschool and daycare. So, I mean, that was a distraction for me. Uh and I also would say that my family worked really hard to manage all of the day-to-day things so I could focus on work and patient care. You know, they did all the grocery shopping, the cooking. Um, I, I joke that my life was like a 1960s man, you know, from Mad Men, that show. Like, I went to work, I came home, my dinner was ready, my kids were clean and they were educated. I kissed them goodnight, I smoked a cigar. I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually smoke a cigar, but I, I probably could have. Uh, <laughs> if I didn't fall asleep. <laughs> totally, totally. I, uh, I, I just, it was, it was a really unique situation for me. I actually really appreciate that my family you know, knew that there was a lot of stress going on at work and um, they really made a, took a big effort to say, you know, we're going to take care of everything here so you can focus on those things. Um, so as infectious disease pharmacists, you know this, but it's very important to make sure that you wash your hands for at least 20 seconds. So a lot of times people will sing a song in their head to make sure that they get to that key 20 seconds. So I'm curious to know um, what songs are you singing in your head to get to that 20 seconds? I choose the classic, uh, happy birthday. It's the easiest for me to remember right now. <laughs> and it's now part of my habit. So <laughs> I won't forget it. How about yeah. you, Zara? Me, me too, actually. I love all the other options people have suggested, but in the moment when I'm washing my hands, happy birthday is always my automatic one that I remember. Uh, and otherwise I'll get distracted. Like, what is the song that I should be singing? So happy birthday. That's what I used to. Yeah, Happy Birthday is a very popular one. I think somebody else did Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Um, a surprising number of people are doing Living on a Prayer by John Bon Jovi. <laughs> I don't know if we've been just interviewing a lot of Jersey people or what, but it's a popular one as well. Um, well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Zara and Rapali for joining us to discuss COVID-19 and help ASHB's efforts to provide pharmacists with the most up-to-date lessons learned and resources. I'd like to share some of those resources with you before we leave. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out ASHP's COVID-19 Resource Center found at www.ashp.org backslash COVID-19. This serves as a clearinghouse for more information on COVID-19 for pharmacy leaders, clinicians, and resources for patients. ACHP has also developed policy recommendations for policymakers. Send an email to using the online advocacy center at advocate.ashp.org. That's all the time we have, so please be sure to subscribe to ACHP's podcast if you haven't, as we'll be posting more on lessons learned, practice, and therapeutic management of COVID-19. I'm Vicki Basilica, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. 
be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.